as we return today to that part of Luke's gospel that he sets aside and devotes entirely to teaching me and to teaching you what it looks like or what it means to follow Jesus, we come to Luke chapter 14 and with it to an incredibly familiar idea. We come today to the familiar idea, and here's how I'm going to articulate it, that following Jesus means prioritizing Jesus and His mission and His kingdom, or to put it differently in light of Pentecost today, what He's up to by His Spirit through His people in this world right now. Okay, it means prioritizing Him and that above absolutely everything and absolutely everyone else. So there it is. And I said that that's kind of a familiar thing because I'm the guy that puts these messages together mostly at least week by week by week. And I got to Luke chapter 14 and to that idea and I wrestled with how to articulate it and whatever. And finally, I had that statement and I thought to myself, my goodness, you know, I say some version of this almost, it seems to me, all the time. And not just in the study of Luke, but like wherever I am in the Bible, following Jesus means prioritizing Him and His mission, His kingdom, what He's up to by His Spirit through His people in this world. Okay, you ready? Above everything and above everyone else. And I thought about that in light of the fact that God is the one who, by His Spirit, wrote, ultimately, all of the Bible. So if this is a repeating refrain of Scripture, it's there on purpose, is it not? I think it's there because the world comes to us, almost everyone, and pretty much everything, and every single day says the exact opposite of that. I mean, the world looks at a statement like that and says, you know what, that's just stupid. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's crazy. Life is not about Jesus. Life is not about His mission. Life is not about His kingdom. It's not about what He wants to do in this world. It's not about the Holy Spirit at work in His people. There is no Jesus. Well, there's a historical figure called Jesus. But that's it. So there's no Jesus, there's no God, there is no Holy Spirit, there is no heaven, there is no hell, there's no coming day of judgment and also of utter deliverance and great joy. There's no heaven to be gained, there's no hell to be found, there's none of that stuff, which means that life is about you for you, and life is about me for me. It's about my mission, or your mission just depends on which one of us is speaking, It's about what we want to do, what we want to accomplish, all of these different things, which curiously sets us up in competition with one another, does it not? It does, doesn't it? That is not the Christian vision, and that is not how people of faith live. It's not. And it all has to do with how you see Jesus, with who He is to you, because that changes everything. Guys, following Jesus, who is Son of God, Savior of the world, Emperor of the universe, reigning and coming King means, okay, it means prioritizing Him and His mission and His kingdom and what He's up to by His Spirit through His people in this world above absolutely everything and above absolutely everyone else. And when you see Him like that, it's kind of like, well, how could I not do that? Like, what else? could possibly be of more importance. So we pick up our study again today, Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, where Luke says this. He says that one Sabbath day, so there that is, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a very wealthy, very prominent, scrupulously religious ruler of the Pharisees, they, meaning that man, this ruler of the Pharisees, and a whole group of other people, as we're going to see, who were experts in the law of God, who were Pharisees just like this man, that he had also invited to lunch, along with Jesus, 
Okay, they, that Pharisee who invited Jesus to lunch and that whole group of other lunch mates that he had also invited to lunch were all doing what? They were all watching Jesus very, very carefully as they walked, I think, from the synagogue where Jesus had been teaching and where they had just worshipped together to this man's house where they were going to have, let's just call it lunch. And as they're walking, Luke says, Behold... There was a man who very suddenly and undeniably is the idea. He's unavoidable. You can't miss this guy, or at least Jesus can't. There was a man who appeared before Jesus and who had dropsy, which is a medical condition that's typically caused by congestive heart failure. It results in a retention of fluids. And where does gravity pull the fluids? Down into your legs, down into your feet. You've seen this. Maybe you've suffered from this. Maybe this is something you have right now. But it's one of these deals where your lower legs and your feet blow up like balloons, guys, and it's very obvious, and it's very painful. It's very disabling. And so then when Jesus and everyone else in this crowd that he's walking to lunch with encounters this man, unlike the rest of these guys, Jesus stops. These guys, I think, just kind of kept going until Jesus went, hey, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Because he speaks to this crowd, he stops, and then he responds to the lunch crowd that he's on his way to lunch with, these lawyers and Pharisees. And he responded by saying this. He asks a question, is it lawful, he says, to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, what did we learn about that last week? Last week, we learned that Jesus' answer to that question is an emphatic yes, but that the universal response of the entirety of the religious establishment of Israel, including these guys, was an emphatic no. Absolutely not. Healing on the Sabbath, according to their interpretation of the laws of God regarding the Sabbath, unless it was necessary to save someone's life, was a sin and an outrage, okay? But not so, says the Son of God and the supreme lawgiver himself, and not so, as Jesus will point out to these guys, even as he did last week, says common sense, or even their own life practices, So then unlike these other guys, Jesus stops when he encounters this man. He says to these guys, look, hey, did you even see this guy, first of all? But then secondly, let's talk about this for a second. Let's work it through together. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And, you know, he already knows their answer. But they're unwilling to give it. Luke says in verse 4, but they remained silent. And so then Jesus took this man with this horribly disfiguring, painful, debilitating condition And he healed them in front of all of these guys, miraculously. You see Jesus? Like, who does that? It's unbelievable. And then he sends this guy away, no doubt rejoicing, and then knowing that all of these guys that he's still walking to lunch with, I mean, it's going to get awkward, passionately disagreed with what he just did. He then ups it a bit by saying the following statement, which is basically his way of saying, and you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. Very quiet walk to lunch from here. He heals this man. He sends him away rejoicing. And then he said to them, this this group that he's going to lunch with, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately, meaning on that Sabbath day, immediately pull him out as opposed to waiting until the next day to pull him out, even though, you know, he could probably wait until the next day. Be a little more traumatic, But he'd still be alive in all likelihood. 
And so the argument is this, look, guys, since every one of you knows that you would do that on a Sabbath day, how in the world can you be critical of me for taking this guy who's been stuck down the well of this incredibly painful, disfiguring, debilitating condition for how many years now on a Sabbath day? And so then not surprisingly, Luke says, look, you know, they just, they couldn't respond to these things. And of course they couldn't. They would have had to violate their own common sense and life practices to do it. But in terms of their priorities, hey, Jesus is still way down here. And their commitment to this merciless interpretation of the Sabbath was still way up here. Now, why is that? Because it really wasn't about the Sabbath. The Sabbath wasn't the issue. The issue was what they were looking to as the source of their sense of significance and importance and value and worth in life. Their identity was all wrapped up in their ability to keep all of their rules and regulations just a little better than everybody else, you see, and so they needed the rules and regulations. And they certainly weren't going to disenfranchise themselves from all the importance and significance and value and worth that they got by keeping the regulations by running against the tide of the universal interpretation of the law of God on this. Get the idea? Guys, these guys needed these rules and to be found consistent with these rules so that they could then keep these rules just a little bit better than pretty much everyone else so that, and here's the deal, they could be seen by pretty much everyone else as being, well, more significant, important, valuable, and worthy of respect and worthy of honor and worthy of admiration and worthy of obedience and whatnot than pretty much everyone else. Do you see how it works? And so what is Luke telling us? He's saying, hey, just so you know, when it comes to priorities and putting Jesus first, or whatever it is that you put first, your identity is a massively important issue because if your identity is found in your ability to generate the applause of men by performing really, really well in any area of life, even religious areas of life, Well, then you're finding your identity in the wrong thing, and your priorities will necessarily then not be right. So I'll give you some examples. If your sense of significance and importance and value and worth is found in the applause that you're able to generate by being really, really good or successful at whatever it is that you do professionally, then being really, really good or successful at whatever it is that you do professionally is going to be number one on your list, and Jesus and his mission and his kingdom and all of that other stuff is going to find their place somewhere way out here. He's going to get the leftovers by a long shot. And honestly, there won't be many leftovers. Not for him, not for family, not for friends, not for health, not for a lot of things. And incidentally, when you lose your job or when you retire from your job or when you're no longer the best or nearly as good as you used to be at your job because Father Time is working against you and at some point it passes you by, You won't just lose your job. You'll lose yourself, and you will feel utterly worthless because that's been the source of your identity. If the sensor of your significance or importance or value or worth is found by your ability to generate the applause of your parents or friends or, I don't know, anybody else for that matter, 
by being a really good student academically, then being a really good student academically is going to be number one on your list. And Jesus and all of his mission and all this other stuff that we're talking about, well, that's going to be way down here. That's going to be off somewhere else. That's going to receive the scraps. And there won't be many scraps because you're focused entirely on this. This is what life revolves around. This is what life's all about. Well, what happens when you graduate? What happens when you don't get an A? What happens when you go to a college with really bright people and all of a sudden you're one of many really bright people? You're part of the cream of the crop. You're not at the top of the list. You don't just lose school or whatever. You lose you. Your sense of significance or importance or value or self-worth is found in the applause that you're able to generate by being a really good athlete. Let me just tell you, as a guy who's about to turn 50, at about 23, that ends. It's over. It's all over. Okay? So then what happens? Well, maybe it's found in the applause that you're able to generate by, I don't know, being in really good shape, looking good for your age. Well, that ends too at some point, does it not? And you're so focused on that. That's number one. My goodness, have you seen Jesus? Have you beheld him for who he is? Have you recognized that the clock is running and that the Lord is coming All right, so the point is that when it comes to our priorities, who or what we're looking to as the source of our identity is a major issue, and it's a major issue for which the gospel itself is the cure. Why do I say that? Because it's through faith in Christ. It is the gospel that cures us, that first of all brings us forgiveness for the idolatry that we engage in. When we put anything else above the Lord, and and it's through the gospel that we come to recognize that we've been adopted as Sons and daughters of the king of the universe, man. As inheritors, full inheritors of the entirety of his kingdom, that there is no greater identity than that. And what that frees us then to do is to prioritize him above everything and everyone else, even, by the way, when that costs us the applause of men because we no longer have to live for that. We're no longer stuck in the performance trap. Our identity is in Christ. We're sons and daughters of the king. And Jesus here illustrates this powerfully. I mean, look, these guys have not even arrived at lunch together. They're not even to this guy's house yet. And Jesus is already massively offended the whole crowd twice. And he's just getting going as we're about to see, because Luke says this in verse seven. He says, now, after they all arrived at the home of this ruler of the Pharisees and fought with one another. So you've got to picture that over where they're all going to sit at this Pharisee's table. That's the idea. Jesus told a parable to those who were invited to this lunch, and when did he tell the parable? When he noticed how they chose the places or seats of honor for themselves around this table that was set in the shape of a U. And the host would sit at the bottom of the U, the center of the U. The places of honor were the places to his right and left, and then they descended in honor from there all the way to the ends, the place of least honor would probably have been the farthest away seat on his left. Jesus watches all that, and then he speaks to it. 
But why did they care? I mean, what was the big deal about where you sit? They cared because the public was invited and often came to meals like this. This meal is sort of a community experience. It's kind of a big deal. There's not a lot going on. You know, you didn't go home and watch the NFL. So they didn't have a lot to do. And when a ruler of the Pharisees like this guy and all of these other really prestigious, prominent, wealthy other guys were going to go have a lunch, they understood, hey, we can go to lunch. Now, we can't sit at the table with these guys, clearly, but we can sit at the outskirts of the table. Sometimes they got the scraps of the table. So there was that benefit. But what they would do is they would come and they'd sit around these guys who sat in this U-shaped table And they would watch and they would listen and very significantly they would then go out into the community sort of as a group of reporters and they would let everybody know, number one, who was invited, number two, where they sat. So Luke says, now Jesus told a parable to those who were invited to this lunch when he noticed how they jockeyed for and then chose the places of honor closest to the host saying to them, but saying to them from where? Because I want you to see how different Jesus is from these guys. I think it is absolutely clear that Jesus says this parable from the seat of lowest honor. Like, I think Jesus went in and he didn't like get stuck with the seat of lowest honor. Like all these guys rushed in and they elbowed Jesus out and he thought, oh man, I can't believe it. I'm stuck with the seat. I think Jesus walked into the room, sized up the deal and sat down first in the seat of lowest honor. Now, why is he free to do that? Why are you free to do that through faith in him? Because he knows who he is because you know who you are through him. He doesn't care if he gets all the applause in the community. He doesn't care how things are reported to everybody. He doesn't care who gets the credit and who doesn't get the credit. He's unconcerned with these things. He is perfectly secure in who he is. So he walks in, he sees the table, he says, I'll sit here. And it perfectly sets up his parable, it says, Jesus told a parable to those who were invited to this lunch when he noticed how they jockeyed for and then chose the places of honor closest to the host, saying to them, here we go, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person and then what will happen? Then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. You know where I'm sitting, Jesus is saying to these guys. But instead, when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place first on your own, like I just did. So that when your host, when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Now stop for a minute. What is Jesus doing here? He's communicating with the host. And what is he inviting him to do? He's inviting him to do for Jesus what he just laid out in his little story. He's inviting him to reprioritize his life, to see Christ for who he really is, his mission, his kingdom, and to move Jesus to the top of his list by moving Jesus from the seat of lowest honor to the place of highest honor. And that is exactly what this guy fails to do. And why he fails to do it is what's significant. He fails to do it because this, this feast, this banquet, is not about honoring anyone 
but himself. That's the deal. So culturally speaking, here's the way that it worked. If I invited you to a banquet and I gave you one of the seats of honor, guess what that obligated you to do? To invite me to a banquet that you throw. To give me one of your seats of honor. So this guy throws a banquet. He invites all of these different people. He's thinking to himself, right on, this is fantastic. They all get talked about today in the community alongside me because I've given them that opportunity by placing them at my banquet table and giving them seats of honor. But I just bought myself like 18 lunches, you know, 18 opportunities for me to be talked about in the community. 18 opportunities for these guys to honor me. And so Jesus extends this invitation to him. And he says, you know, I think I'm going to pass on that. Now, why does he pass on that? Because he doesn't see Jesus for who he is. Who is Jesus to him? He's an itinerant preacher and a probable heretic in his opinion. He's a retired carpenter. He's a peasant Galilean Jew. He is poor and he has no place that he lives. He has no money. He has no resources. He has no ability, Jesus, to throw a feast at which he could be repaid, you see. He has no honor to offer, or so this guy thinks. It really all comes down to how you see the Lord. It's pretty astounding. And so Jesus gets left in the seat of lowest honor. And then Jesus takes the conversation to the last thing, to the end times. He begins to think, and he begins to draw their thinking and our thinking by his next statement, really, to who he really is, and to the fact that indeed there will be a feast, and he will throw that feast, and there will be seats at this feast, and there will be people invited to this feast, and that ultimately the most significant thing is not where you're honored in the feasts of this earth, but whether or not you attend the feast of Christ, whether or not you find a place at his table upon his return. And so Jesus says this in verse 11, he says, for everyone who exalts himself, the idea being on this day in this life at banquets like this, this puny little thing that I'm at above me and above my mission and my kingdom and whatnot. All right, well, everyone who does that will be humbled on the day of my return, on the day of my banquet in the next life. For by doing that, they will have proven that they didn't really see me, that they didn't really know me. But they didn't really trust me. But, he says, he who humbles himself by prioritizing me and my mission and my kingdom and what I'm up to by my spirit through my people in this world, okay, will be what? Exalted. He who humbles himself will be exalted on the day of my return, on the day of my banquet in the life to come. And then Jesus said also to the man who had invited him, he speaks to the host, And he rebukes him, but he calls him to think of heaven, to a far greater honor that he himself offers. He says, when you give a banquet or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid, which, by the way, is exactly what you've done in this instance, he's saying. No, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid when? He calls it out. 
at the resurrection of the just, on the day of Christ's return. And by whom? The idea here is by Jesus himself. Christ, the master of the greatest banquet ever. The banquet yet to come. And then when one of those who reclined a table with Jesus heard these things being said by Jesus, he said to Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, you know, assuming that he was going to be one of those people. But then Jesus said to him, and now follow the story. Jesus is the master. He's the banquet thrower. His banquet is the day of his return. It's the entree into heaven and all eternity, new heavens and new earth. He says, a man who represents Jesus gave a great banquet and invited many. The invitations went out, and then at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant out to say to those who had already been invited, come, for everything for the banquet is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses for why they couldn't come. And the first said to him, well, I've bought a field, and I must go out and see it. And so please have me excuse. Why? Is the field not going to be there tomorrow? What about the next day? How about next week? How about next year? The field's not going anywhere. What's the problem? This guy does not value the master. He does not value his banquet more than the mundane activities of business life, more than a field that he has to go and see. He doesn't see the Lord for who he is. He's missing it. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, which, by the way, is a lot of oxen back in those days. Like, you had to own a lot of fields to justify buying an additional five yoke of oxen to plow these fields. This is a very, very wealthy guy. That's the idea. I bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Can't you do that tomorrow? Can't you send a servant to do that? You could do that in a month. What are his priorities? He doesn't value the master in his banquet. He values wealth and the production thereof. And still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So he doesn't even ask to be excused. He just simply says, hey, you know what the deal is? I value my family more than the master, more than his kingdom, more than his stuff, more than his banquet, more than all that he and it represents. And he assumes that the master is going to go, well, you know what? It's cool, man. It's your family. And he doesn't which is telling, isn't it? What happens? Jesus says, So the servant came and reported these things to his master, and then the master of the house became angry. And he said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in who? The poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant went out and did so, and then came back and said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done. And still there is room in your house. And the master, whose heart it is to have a full house, said to his servant, go out to the highways and to the hedges and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled and filled with people who cannot repay my kindness. For they are poor and crippled and lame and blind. In fact, they need to be compelled to come in because the poor in that culture would receive an invitation like this and go, hey, you know what? As much as I'd like to come to the banquet, you can't obligate me. I can't afford 
to throw a banquet of my own for the master. So I can't go. You know what? Let me convince you of something. The banquet's free. It's so amazing, you couldn't buy it no matter how hard you worked, no matter how much you have to offer. You have the crippled and the lame. Well, they're going to need to be carried. You have the blind. Yeah, I'd like to come, but they're going to need to be led. Compelled to come in. And then Jesus says this. And in doing so, he reveals himself to these men and what the whole story is about. He says, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited but who didn't see and appreciate me for who I really am or my banquet for what it really is, and therefore who didn't care enough about me to prioritize me above all of this other stuff. All right, well, none of those guys, he says, shall taste of my banquet, but rather the idea is it shall be tasted only by those who do, in fact, Jesus or see Jesus for who he really is and his banquet for what it really is. Who accept the invitation of his servants and are persuaded to believe that, you know what? Though they come bringing nothing but sin, It's free. Guys, Jesus is the Lamb of God and the bread of life, who at the expense of his own life has laid a feast of salvation and a feast of forgiveness, a feast of joy, a feast of everlasting life, and a feast of identity that is safe and secure and that frees us from the performance traps of life, from our needing to perform for God with the hopes that maybe if I'm good enough, He'll let me in. No, 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 you're not good enough. Nobody is except Jesus, and He's performed for you. And it frees us from having to perform for others too. It frees us. It gives us a security in who we are. That allows us to sit in the seat of least honor, not really need to be made much of. It allows us to be generous knowing He's got our back and and has us. It lets us live after the fashion of our Lord. He's laid it all before us, and all that we need to do is to accept it and to come to Him with the kind of humility, with the kind of praise, with the kind of thanksgiving, and with the kind of faith that sees Him for who He is, that sees the offer offer for what it really is, that receives fully the offer, finds rest and identity and forgiveness in Him. And that then, in light of who He is, what He's done, what He's doing by His Spirit now, and what He evermore will do, prioritizes Him above everything and everyone else. Following Jesus means prioritizing Him, His mission, His kingdom. It's not about us, what He's up to in this world by His Spirit through people who do this above everyone and everything else. And the only question I think this story suggests is, is that you? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you for this example of humility that we find 
in Jesus. The one who left the seat of greatest honor in all of the universe, humbling himself to take upon himself our flesh, to enter into this world as a peasant Galilean slave of the Roman Empire, a carpenter by trade, an itinerant preacher subject to the insults of his own creation, one who took the seat of lowest honor, that by his life, by his sufferings, by his death on the cross for our sin and by his resurrection from the dead, he might offer to us the seats of highest honor, those to his right and to his left in the kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would give us by your spirit and through your word a vision of that Savior, of who he is, of what he's done, and of the banquet yet to come, that we might reorganize our minds, that we might reorganize our lives and prioritize him, his mission and kingdom above all things. Do this, we pray, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.